You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. And that's kind of what the play is, is that steady movement down, this inexorable pull down into a lot of things that we would rather not talk about in polite conversation. This is The Backdrop. I'm Kevin Blyer. Something a little different for this one, and something I'd like to do more of. As we're chugging along now, and as I've tried to lay out the backdrop of these plays and musicals I find interesting, it dawned on me that the lengthier version of these individual conversations might also be of interest. You know, as if you were snooping in on a conversation between two theater practitioners at Joe Allen's after a show, or in my case, between a writer and an established playwright I, as a writer, truly dig. A backdrop eavesdrop, we're calling it, because I'm not above being a little too pretentious. <laughs> we'll start with playwrights, and perhaps we'll broaden it out from there. Samuel D. Hunter, whose latest play, Greater Clements, is now running at Lincoln Center Theater, has been called a gifted sculptor by the New York Times, a genius by the MacArthur Foundation, they give out those genius awards, and recently he was called the Poet of the Plains, that last one, by me, as I sycophantically and alliteratively drooled over his talent before we turned the microphones on. Yeah, I know. His plays, A Bright New Boise, Lewiston Clarkston among them, are set, some even named after, towns he knows well, in his native, if no longer exactly home, state of Idaho. That's true for his latest, too, Greater Clements, with a small exception we'll explain. As August Wilson is to Pittsburgh as Sam Shepard is to the American West, Samuel D. Hunter promises to be for Idaho, which admittedly is a ton of pressure and not a promise he ever made, not intentionally. It fell into his lap, first as a burden, then an opportunity. An opportunity because as backdrops go, Idaho is rich in stories, landscapes, unique people, universal characters. It offers more than meets the eye, and on a clear day, you can see forever. Sam Hunter, playwright, of course, of his latest Greater Clements. Welcome to the backdrop. Thank you. And in that spirit, what's your backdrop, your self-proclaimed biography? Here's my preemptive follow-up. Are you tired of every profile about you using some version of the phrase, his own private idol? There's probably been <laughs> maybe 15 <laughs> articles that have used that. It's that kind of perfect pun you think, oh, that, that I have to use it. Yeah, yeah. I understand. But like, no, you're not the first person. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I get credit for using it, but also right. distance myself from having used it. Merely by saying other people do it. Well, there's not a lot of um, cultural connections to Idaho. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons that I, that I write about it so much is because it, there's really just not a lot of narrative about that specific part of the country. But, but anyway, to answer your question, I grew up, unsurprisingly, in Idaho. I grew up in northern Idaho, which is sometimes referred to as a panhandle. It's a, a somewhat small strip right. between... Uh, vertical panhandle. That's right. right? Yeah, vertical panhandle okay. between Washington State and Montana. And I grew up right on the border of Washington State in a town called Moscow, which is... Um, uh, it's a college town. And yeah, my family's still there. My family goes back pretty far in that town back to just after the Civil War. And I was always inter interested in the arts. This is a long version. Is that okay? That's fine. Okay, all right. Uh, Although I'll preemptively also say, 
I know this area well. I grew. I'm a Northwesterner myself. Oh, where? I grew up in Bellevue. Oh, yeah. My of parents course. live in Bend. Uh-huh. My brother lives in Issaquah. Yeah. I know it's pronounced Moscow. Yeah. I know it's pronounced <laughs> Oregon, not That's Oregon. Right. Well, hopefully um, most people know that by now. Every time I hear Oregon, mm, I'm like, you still hear it. Really? You still hear Oregon. Oh, yeah. I even know that Orida Potatoes is short for Oregon and Idaho. That's right. And yeah. people don't know that. Oh, yeah. I see a few nods in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Nick over there's like, I had no clue, but you just blew my my mind. Um, so I know that area well, and it invites the question, because you grew up in that area, and yes, many of your, all of your plays are essentially based in Idaho? Yeah, I mean, okay. you, 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 splitting There's hairs like Clarkston is set in Clarkston, well, Washington, which right is right, over, right, the, over, the right border, over the border, you know, sure. but, uh, yeah. but yeah, yeah, and I mean, maybe a couple plays very early on in my career. Do you think that if you had grown up in, say, Sacramento or Saskatchewan, all of your plays would have been based in those cities? Or do you think there's something inimitable about Idaho that lets you at least get to broader themes? Yeah, I think um, maybe if I had grown up in like a place like Sacramento or Saskatchewan or something like that. I, right, I picked pretty specific places. No, yeah, I? that's the thing. It's yeah. like, like, I don't know if I would be writing, if I grew up in Manhattan, I don't know Brooklyn, if I'd be writing... Right plays constantly set in yeah. in New York, maybe. I don't know. I, I I think I just, early on, writing plays about Idaho, or, or rather writing plays set in Idaho, kind of became this way for me to easily locate a play, both physically but also in my mind. And that kind of specificity became really helpful to me. And over the years, it's kind of just become... A project and it's become a way that I can think of my plays as a body of work and not just like well hopefully this play will be good let's try a new one our first episode was actually about Jitney and we did a somewhat deep dive about August Wilson and of course he is identified with for good reason Pittsburgh yeah over the many decades so you have embraced it now as someone who might be able to speak authentically for Idaho specifically I think. I mean, I you know, it's it, the only kind of a body of work is you a body of work. Yeah. yeah, and I and as far as sort of like speaking for Idaho or something like that. I mean, I you know, in in a certain way, like you know, I left Idaho when I was seventeen, or I guess maybe I just turned eighteen to go to college here in New York, and uh, and I haven't lived in I I visit a lot, but I haven't lived there since then, and so I think there's kind of there's the Idaho that's kind of you don't speak living. for it, but you speak from it. Yeah, exactly. That's where yeah, you yeah. Grew up. I'm kind of that had this like fictionalized have Idaho. Your and exactly. Yeah, and I, I'm creating this sort of like fictionalized Idaho that's kind of running parallel to the Idaho where my family still lives. His own private Idaho, you might say. Nope, not going to do it. But for any playwright, the balance between what's true and what's fiction, and if you're lucky, more than true, is a tricky one. As you write it up, how much do you make it up? which makes Greater Clements a different play than Hunter's previous. Well, this is actually, the I think, the first time that I've ever made up a town. I was going to say, you invented this, yeah. in part to erase it. Yes, exactly. Correct? Yeah, yeah. Because when I came up with this idea of a town voting to disincorporate, I, I didn't want that to be locked into the specific reality of a town where you could point to it on a map and be like, they didn't vote to unincorporate. And this, you know, voting to unincorporate is something that's the happening The fact checkers, the... you didn't want exactly. on, your, on, your, <laughs> on your case. <laughs> In Greater Clements, Greater Clements has made a difficult decision to take itself off the map. For reasons I won't spoil, you wouldn't want me to. I mean, it is loosely based off of a town called Wallace, which is in northern Idaho. It's a mining town that had a terrible disaster in the early 70s where I think 92 people died. It was called the Sunshine Mine Disaster. Mm -hmm. 
But the Clements that I've rendered in the play is very different than Wallace. And the plot, what is the general theme and plot of the of the play? I think if I had to kind of boil it down, which I'm never good at doing, because I, I just well, like... Well, what makes you think this is being recorded? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, just like as, as much as I've been doing this, I just, I, I never think of plays in terms of plot. Yeah. And so when Task was, was sort of like, like, well, then you know, bat it offering down. that, yeah. yeah that's I mean, a fair point. I mean, I think that, you know, there is this, you know, there's this small town that is just voted to unincorporate, and there's this woman who's running a mining museum in this small town who's now in the process of shutting the museum down. And this person who she hasn't seen in many, many years is shown back up in her life and offered her this kind of opportunity, uh, opportunity to, to leave and start anew. But it's not... I mean, this sounds like every play, but it's not as easy Fair as enough. it sounds. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's the dramatic version of and then wackiness ensues. Exactly. Yeah. The plot thickens, sure. But if it's a great play, it's not about the plot anyhow. So in this small place, you have the opportunity to explore big ideas. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, a general theme of a lot of your work. You take a small place, you identify specific characters in that, and they get a chance to discuss big ideas. That, it, it's a ripe format for drama. The conversations in Greater Clements between Maggie and Libby specifically are evocative of a lot of conversations we're having in 2019 um, in the U.S., in the U.K., in the Utah, as I was saying. <laughs> Did you mean to draw clear parallels to the conversations at large between, say, Trump supporters and, and non-supporters? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's, there is a definite political dimension to this play that is something that I've never really done before in a play or at least I've never really engaged in this kind of political allegory. Mm -hmm. And I think while I was writing it, I was really conscious of the fact that I didn't want there to be too many one-to-one -one parallels or like, mm -hmm. you know, that like, well, that character represents the Trump supporter and that character represents the, the Democrat. But I did want to get at this sort of like national anxiety that we're feeling right <laughs> now and, and this sort of like lack of dialogue that's going on. And I think that scene specifically that you're talking about in the second act uh, is where it rears its head most clearly, mm -hmm. where these two people are just at odds with one another over a, a political idea. I mean, in this case, it's kind of a small one. I mean, it's a very small town voting to unincorporate itself and get rid of the one last stoplight and close down a mine. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, because I don't really render a lot of like arguments in my plays you know what I mean and that's it and and so that's a scene that and I think that differentiates you a little bit from Will Arbery's play because they're clearly having yes, political arguments that's a debate yeah, yeah but they are having it on the patio of yeah. a very specific backyard yeah that kind yeah of thing. and it's not that I don't think that argument can be a really sort of viable dramatic structure it's just that it's not something that I normally get into in plays of mine to explain, the play I'm comparing Sam's to, Will Arbery's newest play, Heroes of the Fourth Turning, lays the arguments bare and renders them powerfully, with clarity and flashes of anger, whereas Sam's characters simply don't, can't speak so directly. It's just not in their nature. To my mind, both plays, both sets of characters, are authentic, honest, finely wrought, and they're creations of writers that make me angry at their talents. They are two of my favorite plays this season. And I say that not just because Will will be a guest in a coming episode. So, you know, subscribe already. Anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, Greater Clements. More political than Sam Hunter is used to. But how personal is it? Well, you said it's not something you normally get into in plays of yours. Something you have said about plays of yours. You said, 
A few years ago, I just kind of realized if I'm going to write good plays, I have to really put something on the line. It has to be a play that's really hard for me to write where I'm really struggling to work something out. Yeah. In this play, do you have something in mind that you as a person, a playwright, are trying to work out? I think it's a few different things. I mean, I, I wrote this play... I started writing this play. I've been thinking about it for a really long time. I, you know, my mother has this history of she grew up in a small town in southern Idaho that had a large Japanese population because there was a nearby camp. And so I knew I wanted to use that somehow, but it really wasn't until the 2016 election that the play started to crystallize in my mind. And I wrote it in the first draft quite quickly, actually, in January of 2017. And I think the place that I was writing it from, there were, there were two places that I was writing it from. One was the sort of feeling that both here and around the world, we are normally used to our social and political structure being organized in a certain way. It's like a deck of cards that like, you know, every few years they get shuffled, but we know where the cards are. We know, you know, what they are. And, and now, then all of a sudden they, yeah. you know, now they've been thrown up in the air. It's totally, and, and the cards are still f kind of floating midair and we're all gripping our seats and waiting for them yeah. to fall. And so I really wanted to write a play that keyed into that kind of anxiety and, and dread. I mean, in, in, in certain ways, I wanted the play to feel like a horror movie. And I talked about <laughs> that a lot when we were building the soundscape and, and yeah. the tech of it that, that I, yeah. you know, it, I just really wanted there to be a palpable sense of dread and anxiety because I think that's sure. something that we need to actually think about and sort of uh, deal with uh, yeah, you know, it opens with a sense of dread. You have a, you know, yeah. I don't want to spoil too and much. Said, yeah. But you have a sense of someone, is this going to end? Is there jeopardy in this moment? Because as it happens, I happen to know that the ceiling is a little bit different. What's yeah. There was a sense of dread, and it wasn't just about what they were saying. And yeah. it's established pretty early on. And he said, I mean, one of the first lines is, you know, the first two minutes of the play take place in a mine, and that we're yeah. about 3,500 feet down below the surface of the earth. And he has this line where he says, these elevators over here go all the way down over a mile yeah. into the surface of the earth where one of the worst mining disasters in American history happened. And we're going to go there uh -huh. right now. Uh -huh. And that's kind of what the play is, is that steady movement down, this inexorable pull down into a lot of things that we would rather not talk about in polite conversation, you know? I think about, like, one of the images that Davis brought up early on in rehearsal that I think is really right is, you know, like those huge, um, you know, like in the Denver airport, there's big moving walkways oh, yeah. that, like, you know, seem to go on for, that, that we want the play to have this sense of, like, you're getting on this moving walkway and there's this steady pace forward and there's not an opportunity to get out, which uh. maybe is what tragedy is. You know, it's not a play that's trying to trick its audience into thinking no. that that everything's going to be good, but oh, and it's not a play where there's like a good guy and a bad guy and the bad guy wins or the good guy wins. I mean, it's it's these seven people desperately trying to help one another, but the, the math of their relationships just doesn't work. And a lot of my plays, you know, are about people dealing with these crises and existential dread. And it, there's this hard one moment where, where, where their fingers connect and, and you know, at the, at the very... Often at the final moments of the play, they're mm -hmm. able to look each other in the eyes and say, mm -hmm. I'm lonely too, or mm -hmm. something, you know. But in this play, th th that connection is like millimeters missing. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, worried about writing the play for that reason. And I, and I, because I, it, it, it goes to that very dark place of my anxieties. And I think it also, the second thing that it, I kind of anxiety that I think it connects to is I was writing this play while in the process of uh, my husband and I adopting our daughter. And, you know, she's two years old now, 
and she's likely going to live to see the year 2100. And oh I have, yeah, it's, Hard, yeah, have, she was born in 2017. Yeah. So she'll be 83 in 2100. And I have this kind of deep parental anxiety about ushering this human being into this unknown, this unknown. Yeah. yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price. Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And though it was an awkward transition, I had to ask Sam about his anxiety over ushering something else into the unknown. Each play as he finishes it. And this play specifically. When I first brought the play out? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's the most ambitious thing I've ever written. Both in its length, but also in its, its content, I think. And, you know, I knew that it would be taking people to a place that they might not want to go to on a Saturday night. Well, you're certainly... This is all terrible to say for the... As you said, (laughs) we'll lighten it up. Don't worry. In editing, we'll just use a little bit of the darkness, a little bit of the levity. It'll be great. Um, No worries about that. That's on me. That's on me, and yet I failed. So that's on me, too. I guarantee you want to go to this play on a Saturday night. It's the right kind of dark, trust me. Plus, the cast... Speaking of the seven people, you're in great hands. You have yeah. Judith Ivy, of course. But the revelation for me is your actor, Edmund Donovan. Yeah. You've worked with him before. Yes. I was unfamiliar with him. But wow, did he convince me. Yeah. I feel like I have had conversations with people like that in the Northwest. What about him is so compelling? I, I don't know if you had a hand in the casting, but nonetheless, you yeah. were close. No, I was, yeah, Davis What about I, him is so compelling to you? Well, so as you said... That, he plays Joe, the son yeah. of the lead... Uh, so as as you said, I, we worked with Edmund last season on my play Lewis and Clarkston, and I had never seen him before, and and really had never had an opportunity to because he Lewis and Clarkston I I think was maybe his first proper play in New York, and he walked into our audition room, and I I looked at his resume, and I was just like, oh, he's just out of Yale drama, he's only done a yeah. couple things, and. Yeah. Like, okay. And then he did the audition and, you know, the character he plays in Clarkson is this kid who works at Costco and is dealing with a mother who has addiction issues and he's sort of halfway closeted and Uh and just really trying to get through the day and pay his student loans. And he secretly writes these short stories and he's hoping to get into an MFA program. And um, he walked into the audition room and he read these sides and he finished and Davis and I looked at each other and we were like, whoa, like that was pretty spot mm-hmm. on. <laughs> so we ended up casting him and he just grew and grew and grew and then gave this incredible performance. And so then we did a reading with him and Judy of Greater Clements and there was just something he was chasing that was so interesting, but it's a very different role, you know, and it's kind of it, the uh, calibrating somebody who has mental illness is not an easy thing to do. And he started, it was a very slow burn for him in rehearsal and it was kind of incredible to see. We had this this very wonderful extended rehearsal process. So we went into rehearsal on October 3rd and we didn't start performances until November, I think 14th or something like that. And 
the way that he just kept falling further and further and further into the role was he was nestling into it. Yeah, he, he and knew it, what and he could get away with, and the exactly he could do he could he would find more resonance. Yeah, and it was we also just we just spent a lot of time talking about who the guy is and what he wants, and we didn't spend a lot of time talking about like how mental illness manifests itself. It was really just about like how this guy exists in the world. And I also wrote that character from like a deeply personal place. I mean, I don't have the same kind of mental illness issues that Joe has, but you know, my mom came and saw the play. She didn't know anything about the play and she and afterwards she was like, "Oh, that was so hard to watch because you're Joe." Wow. And, I, and it kind of hit me in the gut because I thought I had kind of appropriately veiled myself, but, <laughs> but she knew me when I was 10 years old and and you know, she knew that uh, you know, there's this part in the third act where Joe says something along the lines of, I'm so tired of being weird, mom. Yeah. And I felt like I had written that from a deeply personal place. So all of this is to say that like, I felt like Edmund and I and Davis really had this r- really long process to really figure out how this guy exists in the world. And, and I think the place that Edmund's, the little pocket that he's found is this kind of incredible place of he's desperately trying to help everyone around him all the time. Which he, is exactly right. Of all for the that characters, guy. he's the one who seems to be acting affirmatively in his yes. life. He's trying to do right. Yeah, and I think that in some ways that's the tragedy of the play: is that that good intentions and goodwill sometimes isn't enough. And now the part where I try to horn in on Sam's success. You left Idaho at 18. Uh, Did you go straight to New York at that point? I did. I went to NYU. My first job in New York, right after college, was by far my most, I guess you'd say, theatrical. Uh, I was Anna Devere Smith's assistant. Uh, Her, oh, you you nod. You know who Anna Devere Smith is. Of course. Her student dramaturg is what she called me, but basically her her assistant. Um, And I got off the plane. I drop off my bags. I head to the Newman at the Public for a meet and greet at the public theater. For whatever reason, the meet and greet was on the stage at the Newman. And I walk in, there's a single ghost light, a table with food, a single person, a man standing on the stage. And I walk in, I'm a recent college grad, wide-eyed, not knowing what the hell I'm getting into. And he walks over and says, hello. And I say, hi, I'm, I'm Kevin, I work with Anna. And he said, oh, uh, I'm Tony. And it was Tony Kushner. My first experience in New York was working with George C. Wolfe, Anna DeVere Smith, Tony Kunster, and me going over the script for Anna DeVere's latest play. You know, I, I thought, I guess every college grad gets to have this wonderful experience, fascinating experience. I mention all that to say, I know that Tony Kushner was also an influence for you as well. I first encountered Angels in America at, I think I was 16 or 17, and I saw a production of part one at the University of Idaho, and I think I saw it four or five times. And I I knew that I was interested in theater back then, and I did some community theater here and there, but it really wasn't until seeing that play and then reading Our Town uh-huh. that I was like, I really want to do this. And then somebody offhandedly, I think somebody from the community theater that I knew, told me that she thought Tony Kushner taught at NYU she really doesn't. He was like Professor Emeritus or something like yeah, that, but yeah, I, yeah. I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. So, so I yeah. wrote a one-act play and that's I applied funny. to NYU and that's how I ended up there. As writers, I think we, I shouldn't presume. I know that I probably spent a lot of time trying to emulate writers that I admired for a long time. 
And I guess the best case scenario of that is you're good enough to get close, but not so good that you don't ultimately find your own voice, Mm. that you find an exit ramp and pull off and say, oh, no, it feels good here. This is I I want to aspire to what I think is good writing, but I want to find my own voice. Um, Was there a writer that early on you felt like you were either subconsciously or consciously trying to emulate when you were writing plays? There were a lot, actually. That's, I mean, I think that, I think you're right. I think most writers probably do that early on, that, like, we, we don't know what to do, and so, like, what do we have other than sort of, like, emulating the writers that we love and the plays that we love? So, I mean, I remember, you know, I read Zoo's story, and, and, yeah. and I wrote a one-act that felt like Zoo's story. I read <laughs> Angels in America, and I wrote a three-hour play. And also, I also was kind of a devotee of Richard Foreman, at the end of my college career, and I, I had a little one act at the Ontological Hysteric right as I was graduating college that was like very much in the vein of Richard Foreman. So I tried a lot of stuff. And then I felt like after that, I floundered for a few years. And I think the way that I eventually found my voice over the process of many years, my voice such as it is, like, is that it wasn't really kind of figuring out what I was good at or figuring out the kind of plays that I like and then emulating them, it was it was more sort of like figuring out the things about my writing and the things about the theater that I don't like, and then avoiding those things. So it kind of felt like kind of a series of left turns of like, well, ooh, I don't like that. I don't, and then like writing plays and then being like, oh, I don't like how that play turned out in these ways, so how can I write a play that like is really pivoting away from that really hard? And it really wasn't until I wrote probably the bright new Boise and the whale that I was like, okay, I'm, I think I'm starting to settle into something here that I'm interested in. And I'm still to this day surprised that it's basically realism, you know, like I, I, you know, that wasn't realism wasn't actually the stuff that I was, I was really into when I was, when I was a kid, but just the more that I did it, the more that it just felt like a, a sweater that fit me, you know, a sweater that fit real people, real places. But Sam has kept striving to reach for something that I, at least, feel is increasingly rare. Connection. You've said that you feel like plays should be, or the best plays are, an experiment in empathy. As a writer, I worry that empathy is becoming an increasingly scarce resource. We just suck at being empathetic these days. Mm -hmm. Uh, For that reason, I wonder, do you feel it's a bigger hurdle to overcome, to connect with an audience, because they're not as easily, naturally going to put themselves in someone else's shoes. We just don't do that as often these days anymore. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, sometimes it can be tempting to draw people in. At least I feel this way. Sometimes I'm like, you know, well, maybe I need to draw people in with the tricks, you know, the tricks being plot or sex or, or uh, you know, formal gymnastics or... There's no room, kind of... and also you feel like there, maybe there's no room for subtlety. Yeah, 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 because... I'm, I'm again, projecting. That's how I feel sometimes. Yeah, no. And I need to just shake the viewer. If I write a joke for something, I need yeah. to be just 10 degrees more explicit about why it's funny. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, it, and sometimes I get tempted to do that kind of thing of, like, maybe I need to write snappier dialogue or maybe I need to write plots that are have more twists and turns or maybe... I need to be more hip, or maybe I need to write about people who are more hip. But then I, I but then you I settle just, back into and trusting, then I settle back into it a yeah. little bit more. But then, as a result, I think the plays that I write, because they don't have those things that like reach out and grab an audience and demand, and and I'm, I I don't mean to sound uh, sanctimonious. Like I, I like I, I though there are plays that do that kind of thing that are great. Maybe it's just that I'm not a good enough writer to do those kinds of things. But 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 
I think the plays. This that, is me silently objecting. With right, <laughs> but I mean, I, you, we don't know. I mean, God well, no. I guess we don't well, know. I guess <laughs> we don't know. But I think like the the plays now are kind of. I, I mean, I feel like, and I feel this especially with Greater Clements that 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 all I'm doing is kind of opening a door, and inviting an audience to walk through that door, and it's kind of up to them whether or not they do it. Trust me, you should. And for that matter, Sam has opened a door for me to grill him on some of my favorite writery questions. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I won't ask the typical question, where do you get your ideas? But I will ask you, do you seek them out or do you find that they find you? I don't seek them out, no. Because I actually wouldn't even know where to look. Because I feel like every play has started from such drastically different play. I mean, sometimes it's something I read. Sometimes it's just like a space I'm in. Sometimes it's just something somebody says to me. Uh, so it's, it's hard. I wouldn't even know how to go dig But let's in. say you get an idea, you find yourself mulling it over. Mm -hmm. When do you know or how do you know when you're ready to start capital W right? It usually takes a really long time and it's usually not until I know what the end of the play is. I, don't, I actually don't ah. know if I can start writing if I, if I don't know what the end of the play is. And not all writers are like You don't that. mean necessarily the plot, but you mean the emotional resonance. You mean what? I kind of mean what, both. How, okay. You yeah, mean yeah. Both. Like, and, and by the time I get there, it can change. But no, I kind of need to know what happens in, in terms of the story because, I mean, it's almost like I need to know. It's like a road trip where it's like I need to know that I'm heading to Albuquerque. Yeah, and if I don't know that I'm going there, then I'm just kind of like, yeah. well, anything could happen. I could just drive. I could take any of these roads. But if I know what the destination is, like I don't know exactly how to get there. But but I, you know, it wasn't until I knew what the last three scenes of this play were that I was able to actually sit down and write it. I didn't know it was going to be a three act play when I started, and I also but just I wouldn't even moment, know how to write the first scene if I don't know what yeah. the last scene is. I mean, I, yeah, my problem is that I fall in love with some great first scenes that leave me nowhere. <laughs> and I have to kind of, and this is for mainly for my television writing is I have to kind of right. take a step back and say, don't get too antsy about it. But that's but, why TV writing has been actually a little hard for me because TV writing, I mean, it's been really interesting the TV writing that I've done, but like you can't know the end when you're writing for oh, a good television point. You series. You can't know, you know the end end. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is right. so, I mean, you can know the end of an episode, but right, you, but you, right. but like God knows what the end yeah. of season four is going to be. And know? sometimes God may be the only one who knows yeah. because network executives haven't decided. <laughs> That's right. Um, but when you do finally know that ending, yeah. and to paraphrase Elvis, when you decide you need a little less contemplation, a little more action, and put pen to paper, what do you do right then? I mean, do you rush home or do you say, all right, I know what it is, but I'm not panicked about it? Yeah, I'm never really panicked about it. I'm never really like, oh no, it's going to fly out of my head. I mean, I might like write an email to myself about like what the basic shape of the play is or something like that, or take okay. a note. I think with Greater Clements, I was like walking downtown when I yeah. had the idea for the last few scenes, and so I just wrote myself an email. Um, I love it. But, uh, you, but yeah. then the writing is, you know, the writing with Greater Clements was uh, very quick, actually. The, the first draft came out very quickly. The development was very long, but the first draft was very quick. But that's not always the case. I just finished a new play, and the, that draft took me over a year uh -huh. before I felt comfortable being like, okay, even though I knew what the end of the play was, I kept starting and restarting because I was like, I don't think I'm heading in the right lane, mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And, and it really took me 
a long time to figure out the shape of it, you know, how to get to the final scene. When you write those emails to yourself, do you have a, a I'm not asking what it is, but do you have a particular subject header that you use to catalog it all? Or do you actually say regarding, regarding like, greater Clemens? I think it really just says like, like new like play. Yeah, fair enough. I know the feeling. And you always, I always feel, feel so silly at that point. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to subject this thought that I had and then write an email to myself. Uh, after a period, one space or two. I changed <laughs> recently. It was crazy. I... Because I'm, I'm still in the great debate myself. I it's the last when did, I changed like a year ago and it shocked me. I was always two and now I'm one. That's what I and fear it looks I'm better. going to go to. I don't know that it looks better. Well, it looks better. This is why I changed it because I started doing more screenwriting work and it yeah. looks terrible in Final Draft. One it's, or two. Two looks terrible. Yeah. Okay. And you have to do. And so when yeah. I was writing these scripts, <laughs> I just had to teach myself to just do it once. And but then all of so a sudden hard. my emails changed. Did they? And and now it's you just could, it's You could gone. change your muscle memory to just doing one without... It took forever, but okay. yes. It's. I mean, I get anxious just thinking about what I'm going to do tonight and tomorrow. Just, <laughs> frankly, the email I write after this, I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I'd be, I mean, I, I think I can say I'd be constitutionally on. incapable of putting two, dot, oh, two spaces after a period in there. You would be. I, I think so. I think those are fighting words right now. I'm <laughs> telling you. Um, okay. Uh, I need a number. How many times have you had an idea, a premise, a play, a line, a piece of dialogue and thought that's good enough. I won't forget it. You've not written it down. And then the only thing you remember is that you forgot the idea that happened last week. It does it break all, your heart? all the time. I, I just like, I am. Why not... do we tell ourselves it's good enough? I won't forget. I mean, or it's not even that. It's that it's just so substantial. I would trust myself not to forget it. Yeah. No, but I, and I, I try to get better you? about writing those emails to myself, but like, but it's like, especially now that I'm a parent, it's like, <laughs> you know, like I'm just like refereeing so yeah. many things on a daily basis yeah. that like sometimes I just can't pull out my phone and write it down. But I do tell myself I'll remember, but no, it happened last week. Oh my God. How many times have you written down an idea, looked at it the next day, and it seemed to be written in a foreign language for all the sense that it made to you? Not that I more have the experience of like thinking I have a good idea, writing it down the next morning, looking at it and being like, that's awful. Well, it's not that you don't understand it. You actually just judge it. You're saying oh, you I judge just immediately it. judge it. Now, I see. You dismiss it as quality. It's Understood. often after having a beer. Okay. When I write down an idea and the next, next morning was like, that was dumb. There you go. I suppose this might be my last question. Favorite part of the process, the about to write, the writing or the having written? The writing. By you can far. get lost in it. You really enjoy it's it. See, it's... I think maybe the most content I am ever. You lose time sometimes? Yes. Yeah, yeah I actually, I, I, it's the only time in my life where, because I'm a very anxious person normally, and I'm always like a little keyed up, and when I'm writing a play is like the only time that, that I'll look at a clock and be like, I thought 30 minutes went by and about four hours went by. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. actually think it's a really important, I, I think for all writers, what will sustain you in the long term is a love of actually writing. Because if you only like having written something good, that's not a sustainable way of life, I think. Because it's, it's never going to be enough, you know. But if you just, if you really just love writing, then you're always going to do it and the failures won't matter. Well, whether you enjoyed recording a podcast or having recorded a podcast, we have just <laughs> recorded a podcast. So Sam Hunter, the playwright behind Greater Clements and a growing roster of plays that mine big ideas from small places. And of course, Greater Clements is running now at the Mitzi Newhouse Theater at Lincoln Center Theater. Sam, thank you. Thank you.
Even if you've never been to Idaho, you should find your way to Lincoln Center Theater, where Greater Clements is running through January. For tickets, go to lct.org. I'm Kevin Blyer, at Kevin Blyer on Twitter, and in debt to Sam Hunter and Nicholas Buckholtz of Lincoln Center Theater. Thank you both. If you enjoy The Backdrop, please subscribe and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen. A writer asking for a review, that's a rare thing, I think, so take advantage of it, although five stars is always nice. The Backdrop is produced by Nella Vera, edited by Nella, and by me, and part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.